men who are trying to save their marriages after having been in adulterous relationships and having had affairs. Um, and because last year, um, not being able to travel at all, we did uh, most of our ministry by Zoom. And uh, as a result, we ran a, an Understanding of Valiant Man for women. And uh, Helen and I um, had 35 women from around the country every Thursday night going through the Understanding of Valiant Man. And when you, when you feel and you hear the pain um, in the hearts of women, when you hear the pain and the struggle in the hearts of men you know that somebody ought to talk about this stuff and because not many people do talk about it, uh, I could easily have picked a different subject but I thought, no, I'm going to talk to you again about the valiant man stuff um, because it just doesn't go away. And secondly, uh, two years ago, um, I made a decision to uh, update the manual that I created for my doctorate when I did the Create the Valiant Man course. Now, I created my, did my, uh, I graduated in 2005 with my, with the Valiant Man course being my doctoral project. And as a result, virtually all of the stuff that I had researched had to be written before then. Um, you, unless you're brilliant, you can't really research it until they write it. And so most of the research that I, the latest research I had was up to about 2004. In the last, in the 10 years beyond that, a mountain of research has been done on men and the whole issue of the pleasure centre, which I'm going to address tonight, um, material that wasn't available when I first created the course. Now, it didn't mean I had to revise anything of the course, but I had to add some stuff to it. And so the latest manual now has a red stripe on it and it says information update on it because I've updated about seven of the chapters with the latest research on some of the stuff that really speaks to the issue of men and uh, I'm going to just give you a little bit of that tonight. Um, why did I create this course? Well, because I was a pastor for a long time and a school teacher before that and it's, um, I've just been aware all my, uh, all my ministry years the pressure that sexual desire has in a man's life has the ability to change the way everything works, the way marriage works, the way business works and often the way ministry works. I lost four friends in a single year. 1999, four friends, deep good friends in ministry were knocked out, three of them because they just didn't handle this stuff well. And I was in two different churches, two weekends in a row, one in Auckland and one in Phoenix in Arizona. Neither of those two guys was in ministry anymore by the time I got there. And I came home from that trip saying to God, is anyone going to be left standing by the end of this stuff? Uh, somebody ought to do something about it. I just made a decision I would do something about it. One of the reasons that I love talking to men about this is because of um, John Gottman's perspective on men. John Gottman is probably one of the best marriage counsellors in the world. They, they, they do their ministry out of Seattle and all over the world, they train marriage counsellors. This is what John Gottman has to say. Men have the power to make or break a relationship. What men do in a relationship is, by a large margin, the crucial factor that separates a great relationship from a failed one. This does not mean that a woman doesn't need to do her part. But the data proves that a man's actions are the key variables 
that determines whether a relationship succeeds or fails, which is ironic since most relationship books are written for women, heart surgery on the wrong patient. I recognise the fact that I have the power to profoundly damage the life of my wife and I've got the power to make her life a living hell. I've also got the power to be a blessing to her every single day and I want to understand what are the factors at work in my life that uh, could make me either a danger or a blessing. It's one of the greatest things you can ever do is help men to be a blessing because as John Gottman says, what men do is the critical factor. Um, and I know people say, that's sexist. No, he, as, as uh, John Gottman says, this is the data, not, not an opinion because he's done 40 years of longitudinal research, sticking things at things in research. And he'll tell you that the, the, it's a very simple fact that w when you can get men to engage in um, the right kind of stuff, women and children live in a totally different environment. It just changes everything. Now, I said, well, what, is, what about the women? Well, the, the reality is that men have the ability to just muck it up. And women just have a tendency not to muck it up quite as often. Show you some proof. <clears throat> I took these stats from, well, from Sictoria, of course, but so some of this, you know, may not apply to, may not, may not apply to Queensland. Um, police crime statistics on offenders processed for the 2013-2014 reporting. Just a single year um, to demonstrate the significance of men out of control, when men aren't behaving well. 87% of homicides committed by men. 90% <clears throat> of robberies committed by men. 92% of abductions committed by men. 83% of non-sexual assaults committed by men. And when it comes to sexual assaults, 98% of sexual assaults are committed by men. Now, it's not to say men are bad, it's to say men are dangerous. Men out of control or men un not, not living well are dangerous people. And um, as a result, I devote a lot of my time to trying to help men because I know if I can help a man, I help everybody that is relating to that guy. One of the reasons that men struggle is because the average Australian man has no vision for manhood. He has no idea what... Um, manhood is supposed to be or what manhood is supposed to focus on. The Bible says this, <clears throat> where there's no prophetic vision, people cast off restraint. Um, if you were to ask the average man, what's the, reason of, what's the meaning of life? What's the purpose of your life? What's the fundamental reason for your existence? The average man wouldn't be able to tell you an answer to that. He, he doesn't really know. Um, I think... In Western culture, largely people have come to the conclusion that isn't life just about trying to have fun, having as many pleasurable experiences as you can before you die? And the answer is no, that's not the meaning of life. Um, and when men lack prophetic vision, they try to fill it in. I think one of the most insightful books in the Bible for men is Ecclesiastes, which is one of the great kings of history, King Solomon. And King Solomon was a man who had profound experiences with God. He had visitations I've never had. And yet when he writes a book, Ecclesiastes, he calls it the preacher. 
he starts it out by saying meaningless, meaningless, everything is utterly meaningless. And then as he begins to explain why he said that, you just realise this is a man trying to figure out what's life about. I'm getting older, I'm going to die. I was playing golf with Don today. One of the things I hate about getting older is I'm, I'm losing distance. But you, you make up for that by increasing your sneakiness level. And, and, and as a result, m- me and Don prevailed today, you see. I may be getting older, but you see, I'm, I'm making up for it with the sneaky factor. And sinking that last pot on the 18th was just glorious, gentlemen. It was just a glorious experience. And ask Don later. We realised that golf is really a kind of a humble, humble kind of glory. And if we keep talking about it ourselves, we're moving out of the humility factor. So please ask us questions so that we can explain it to you in as glorious a manner as it really was because it was just a brilliant day. I could tell you some of the shots, but it's not what we're really here for. Although we could make it what we're here for, but we probably shouldn't. (laughs) Men get the feeling that life is just about having fun. And when men get that feeling, wives are in danger. Uh, ministries are in danger, children are in danger. Well, what's a man's life supposed to be about? Proverbs puts it in another uh, translation, puts it this way, where there is no vision, no redemptive revelations of God, the people perish. And fundamentally, men need to understand that they do have a call from God upon their life. And it really helps. Um, I often share this kind of talk in, in schools with young men. And uh, one of the things that I can say to them, I can help you in two sentences to have a a, a very concise understanding of what God wants from you, what God would like to see come out of your life. And it's summed up in just two Hebrew words. The Bible says, And God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the primary call on a man's life, to work and to care. The first word is the Hebrew word orbad, and it simply means to work, to labour, and to serve. And in the Valiant Man course, I describe this, that a man is called, like Jesus, to embrace his role as an ox. My wife owns an ox. I'm, I'm it. Now, that, that's a, that can be a problem because the Bible says where there is no ox, the crib is clean. Um, oxens are messy things. I mean, they poop up the joint and everything gets messy. So when she complains, I say the Bible said it, you know, where there is no ox, the crib is clean. But the Bible also says, but there is great profit in owning an ox. Yeah, men can be a bit messy, but I tell you what, you get a good man, he'll labour and he'll serve you all the days of his life. And God made us with a strength to carry burdens women and children should never have to think about. When a man kind of gets that figured out, um, then he takes his education seriously because I'm not just alive to have fun. I'm alive to labour, to work and to serve. I've got gifts and skills. I'm supposed to earn an income. I'm supposed to create. I'm supposed to provide for. And when a man gets this as a sense of a call of God upon his life, it changes a lot about the way he approaches his days. The second word is the word shamar. A man is called to shamar, and the Hebrew word means to guard, to keep, and to protect. God never called us to be predators. Um, he called us to be like Christ is to the church, as far as our wives are concerned. 
And one of the most stunning simple thoughts is that God says to a husband, you are the head of your wife. And in a, a world that doesn't understand that, that sounds an offensive thing. Hey, my, I don't need a head. You know, I'm a, I'm a real person. Yeah, that's right. But the reality is what men do by a large margin uh, is the factor as to whether relationships succeed or fail. And you can complain about the idea that a husband is the head of the wife, but he, he still is, whether you like it or not. But if you don't understand what headship means, then you can express that in a totally destructive way. It's, being the head doesn't mean you get to own the remote control and all the money's yours and you get sex anytime you want because God said I'm the head of the life. No, you're the head of your wife like Christ is the head of the church and the one privilege that comes with headship is that you get to die first. The privilege of laying down your life. And when a man understands that Jesus is the picture of headship, he's the head of the church. And his the demonstration of his headship wasn't in him bossing everyone around. It was in laying stuff down and carrying burdens that no one else could carry. And as a result, you, you begin to develop young men who begin to see life in a totally different way. I'm not just alive, alive to fool around and see how many Netflix I can watch and how many games I can play on video and how much school I can s- skip and how much sex I can, how many orgasms I can have before I die. That... That is um, a a picture of an animal who's lost control. But a man is a divinely appointed creature called by God to work, to labour and to serve and to guard, to keep and protect. And some years ago, in fact 53 years ago, this little girl, she's older than that now by the way, (laughs) this little girl stood alongside me in a Lutheran church And I said to her, forsaking all others and cleaving only unto you, for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. And that beautiful little 19-year-old took me at my word and pinned her future to that promise. Now, I have the ability to make her life hell. The reason I put, I, I, I put up a picture of Helen when she's two years of age is because of what it does to my heart. It reminds me of what I am responsible for. Um, I could, the, the biggest problem we have with women is that they're far more attractive than we often know what to do with. And as a result, we don't see um, this extraordinarily precious but vulnerable human being. It's what men do which is by a large margin the greatest factor as to whether a relationship will succeed or fail. And this little girl, I have this picture sitting on my desk at home where I work. Every day I see that picture when I'm sitting at that desk. And I'm reminded that that little girl trusted my promise and one day God will want to talk to me about that because I made that promise in the presence of God. In fact, We say that in the presence of God and this congregation, repeat your vows. And I promised God and this little girl that I would serve her and I would protect her. I could make her life a misery, but I can also be a profound blessing to her. 
This year we celebrate 53 years of marriage and I'm aware of one of the most potent dynamics at work in men in particular that has the ability to unravel this kind of a promise. I want to talk to you about understanding the pleasure centre in your brain. <clears throat> this is relatively new research. Everybody wants to be happy. Every man wants to be happy. One of the reasons that men are a little more problematic is that just in the way God has created womankind, women seem to, to just deal with ordinariness better than men do. Um, women tend to handle uh, routine better than men. Um, if they're cared about, and they, what women will endure is extraordinary. I don't know if you were ever there for the birth of a child. But dang me, man, I was there for the birth of three out of four of our kids. And I want to tell you, if men had babies, you'd never see a second one in a family, I can promise you this. <laughs> I tell you what, that had never happened again. Oh, dear me. Oh, no way, we're not doing that again. It's, it's, what a woman is willing to go through to bring children into the world is extraordinary. And it is almost never the case. It does happen. But it's always never the case that you see a man left with children because a woman has walked out, you will tend to see 70% of the time it'll be a woman doing her best to keep children together because a man has walked out. And why has he walked out? Because of the Solomon syndrome. I found life boring. I found it hard. I mean, you mean I go to work every day just to put food on the table and when will it ever end? We have bills, we have challenges, the lawn keeps growing and I've got to mow it and the weeds keep going and I pull them out and I pull them out and they grow back and I pay the bills and the bills come back and, and, and I paint the house and paint, paint falls off and I have to paint it again and then I send the kids to school and the flipping kids come back and... <laughs> <coughs> Men find it harder to do ordinary and they start asking the question, um, where, where's this exciting thing called life? I thought life was supposed to be a big thrill. I thought life was supposed to be amazing and brilliant and exciting and thrilling and actually it's just a series of relatively ordinary events. Going to work, coming home, paying bills, mowing lawns, caring for kids. Where's the thrill? And the challenge we face is that we have got a propensity or a desire for pleasure that has been woven deeply into our heart. Now, the only reason you can experience pleasure is because God has put a pleasure centre in the brain. Actually, the pleasure centre is a combination of three features in the brain. Um, it's a mixture of the ventral tegmental uh, part of your brain then it's, there's the locus accumbens and then finally there's the prefrontal cortex. And those three sections of the brain work together to give you an experience of pleasure. And God's not against pleasure. Um, God is the author of pleasure and the Bible says at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. The problem comes when we have no idea uh, that life is filled with ordinary and that life is not about the pursuit of pleasure 
It's about the pursuit of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and pleasure gets mixed in there along the way. Now the way in which um, you experience pleasure is that you have to stimulate the ventral tegmental area, the VTA. And there's lots of things that can do it. You can stimulate the ventral tegmental area just by imagination. We can imagine scenes and situations that stir a feeling of pleasure because even your own thought life is capable of stirring the ventral tegmental area. You can get it through smelling. You smell bacon and eggs cooking in the morning and you think, what's well, going to be a good breakfast today? It can do it. Uh, you can get it through touch. The, the sensation of touch is uh, part of the whole process and it's one of the things that makes masturbation a danger because at some point in a man's life, if he discovers that his penis is a, is a point of access to pleasure and everybody wants pleasure, that can become um, uh, just a process that I get out of the drudgery of life by engaging in masturbation. Um, you can do it through tasting. Tonight we did a little of that, great stuff. Um, stick a few um, ice creams into the mix and, and, and it's heaven. So taste can do it for you. Uh, one of the most potent liberators in a man's life, because of the way a man's brain has been formed, is through the eyeball. Sights that stimulate the ventral tegmental area are a powerful access, which is what makes pornography such a potent and addictive experience because you can stir the pleasure centre in your brain just by what you see and nobody necessarily even knows what you're looking at. It's one of the great challenges we have is that women are attractive and I'd like to look. It can be done by hearing. Stick some earbuds in your ear. Um, as a result, you can stimulate the ventral tegmental area and the essential neurotransmitter that allows the signal to go from the VTA through to the locus accumbens is called dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter. Now, here's the challenge, for, 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 and this is where good theology comes in. If you're born into a Western society, you're asking yourself by just looking around yourself, what is the meaning of life? And the meaning of life seems to be to try to have as much fun as you can before you die, because we know we're all going to die. So let's see how much fun we can have. And we go after the pleasure centre and we discover ways of getting at the pleasure centre and provoking feelings of pleasure. But here's the problem. You and I were not, we were not, were not created for a life of relentless pleasure. We're designed for a series of what you could call gentle pleasures. Did I put that? I did the wrong thing. Go back there. We're designed for gentle pleasures. You were designed for a garden. You were designed for a kitchen, for a bedroom, a dining room. You were designed for gentle pleasures. And if you delight yourself in gentle pleasures, there are exciting moments that then fit into that that can really punctuate a pleasant life with wonderful moments. And that's God's plan for humanity. He's, he's never planned for us to try to pound the pleasure centre and turn every waking moment into a thrill. And it's why one of the most potent dangers we face today in our digital age is the 
relentless attempt to try to stimulate pleasure and escape from ordinariness through entertainment, gaming, gambling, a whole bunch of of stuff, to stimulate the thrill and make me feel like I'm having a wonderful life 24 hours a day. Now, the important thing about um, not understanding that you're made for gentle pleasure is that you then start seeking pleasure, which is exactly what Solomon did. Read Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Chapter 1 is all about how miserable he is and start to ask himself, why do I feel like this? And he says, well, I'm getting older and my life is ordinary. What do you mean it's ordinary? You've got a thousand women and you're a king. Yeah, but when you keep doing that every day, it gets ordinary. And now the question is, where's my big thrill? And in chapter 2, the Bible says, he said, I decided to try to figure out what was good for a man to do in his life. And in chapter 2, he starts doing everything he can think of to stimulate excitement in his life. He said, I had to go at pleasure, I had to go at drugs, I had to go at alcohol, I had to go at business, I had to go at buying and selling stuff and I got myself musicians and then I got a bunch of women. He was going after everything and the Bible says at the end of that, he says, I denied my eyes nothing that I desired but I hated my life. And when a man gets to that point, the women and children who look to him for leadership are in serious trouble. Because this is a man flapping around, trying to make life work. I don't like the woman, I don't like the, the house, I don't like my car, I don't, I'm big enough boat. Everything in life, and, and in that point, life begins to break down. And here's, the, here's where, where that, why that happens. When you want to get away from ordinary, garden variety pleasure, just being with a woman, loving your kids, having a family meal together, sharing the Bible, worshipping, doing your garden, mowing your lawn and standing back and feeling proud of the fact that you've made this place look good for the people who hurt you. All that, that ordinary stuff. If, you, if, that's, if, you, if, if that's not enough for you, if you, you've got to get the intense stuff, well, you can try and play golf. <laughs> and, then, and golf is designed to assure that there's not that much intense pleasure on the process because they're so hard. <clears throat> if you want to have intense pleasure, the way you do it is simply to get something that stimulates a higher release of dopamine. Now, the, the, the one thing that will release the greatest amount of dopamine and stir the pleasure centre the greatest is heroin. Um, it is the greatest stimulator of the pleasure centre that we know of in, in the world. Um, the problem with pornography is that it is almost as potent as heroin because it actually works on phenylethylamine in the brain, which is... which is chemically almost identical to crack cocaine. Um, This is, instead of buying it at the street corner, you only have to watch a bit of naked sex going on and you can stimulate phenylethylamine in your brain and you're hitting the pleasure centre with a dose of crack cocaine. That's why people do it and that's why they feel so uh, excited about doing it and that's why they keep on doing it. Uh, It'll give you a bigger hit. I'm not recommending it, I'm just telling you it will. Gambling will do it, partly because of the tension involved. Um, alcohol will do it. Gaming will do it. And it's one of the things we talk about at the end because I think it's one of the realities that those of us who are fathers and grandfathers need to understand something about the pleasure centre and where this current generation is headed if they don't appreciate 
that the relentless stimulating of the pleasure centre has a consequence in the way your brain works and the way your brain develops. So this is how you do it. You stimulate the level of dopamine and what you do is you produce dopamine flooding. You flood the brain with dopamine. And what happens is that it gets over the threshold, stimulates the locus accumbens, and as a result, you get the pleasure sensation, um, which is what we were looking for. Hallelujah. Intense pleasure. But here's the problem. When you flood the brain with dopamine, I don't know how much you know about how brain, brains actually work, but they don't work hardwired. They, 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 the signals have to jump from a, a dendrite across a gap, and the way that that works is by the dopamine is the neurotransmitter from one side of the synapse to, to the next. And the more dopamine you've got, the more powerful the signal. So if you get a powerful pleasure signal, it gets over the threshold, stimulates the locus accumbens, you get euphoria. I'm thrilled with life, I'm loving what's going on. The problem is um, the dopamine receptors, when you flood the brain with dopamine, begin to shrink. And as they begin to shrink, what gave you a big thrill yesterday cannot give you the same thrill next week or next month because the dopamine receptors begin to shrink so that you've only got one option. You've either got a declining... This is called neurochemical tolerance. This is what happens to a heroin addict. When they start off by doing a little injection of heroin and get a huge hit from it, but three months down the track, all that little injection is doing is staving off withdrawals. And if they want the same hit, they're going to have to double the dose. And then they're going to have to double it again. And there's, there comes a point where they're taking doses of heroin that would kill you, but because they're at neurochemical tolerance, they survive. Now all they're doing is pumping that stuff in to escape briefly um, because neurochemical tolerance means that those dopamine receptors are shrinking. The brain is less and less capable of experiencing pleasure. And here's a consequence. As dopamine receptors begin to shrink, the threshold required to experience pleasure is going up. You've got to pump more in there to get any kind of a signal. Now, that means that the gentle pleasures, loving a woman, caring for your kids, mowing a lawn, doing a job well and feeling like you did something worth doing, they're gentle pleasures. They can't get over the threshold anymore. And so things that you once enjoyed, dropping a 20-foot putt, just playing around a golf, smelling grass, just the thrill of being out there, that used to give you pleasure. As you damage the dopamine receptors, those pleasures don't get over the threshold. So in a man's life, more and more of his life experiences are boring and ordinary, and worthless, and meaningless. And all of the things that God called him to be and to do become, that feel, well, who, who wants to do that? And as a result, increasingly, one day at a time, you're creating the kind of a man who doesn't know how to make loving a wife a reason to be alive, or caring for children, or doing the right thing, or caring for a church, or, or just serving people. That, that doesn't help, doesn't work anymore. And in the process, you have damaged the pleasure centre of your brain 
And I noticed this years ago with men coming into my office and sitting down and telling me this, I think I'm going to leave my wife. And I'd say, why is that? He says, because I've fallen out of love. I mean, we just don't love each other anymore. I mean, we used to love each other. And I said, well, has it always been like that? No, no, there was a time we just, we just couldn't keep our hands off. We were just really excited about each other. But not anymore. And I can look a guy like that in the face and say, you know, what you need to understand is the reason you, you feel that way is not because there's something wrong with her. It's because there's something wrong with you. And the problem's not with you. I'm not going to yell at you. I'm just going to say you've damaged the pleasure centre in your brain you have so relentlessly been trying to pound the, resen- the pleasure centre of your brain that even a simple pleasure of holding her hand doesn't touch you anymore. And it's not because there's something wrong with her. It's because these dopamine receptors have been shrinking. You can't experience it any longer. And when you keep that up, the damage that happens to a man, it's just like in Solomon's case. He said, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, but I hated my life. That's when a man gets to that, then women and children get to hate their lives too. The tragedy is that what you're looking at is dopamine flooding, shrinking the dopamine receptors, and it's the development of what we call anhedonia, the inability to experience pleasure. And because everybody needs that, then you start feeling like, well, why would I even bother to live? And uh, that kind of experience is really just a matter of damaged pleasure receptors. Now, when we first started the Valiant Man course, I didn't, we, I didn't have this research, so I didn't know the mechanism. But I did know this, that the Bible puts it this way, a full soul loathes even a honeycomb. In other words, when you pound the pleasure centre or you pound the taste buds and you keep cramming in one pleasurable thing after, there comes a moment where you can't experience the pleasure of the thing that you used to enjoy. Too much honey and you'll start when you'll want to be sick. I'm not happy. I don't like it anymore. In fact, I feel I want to vomit. And the, the, the clue is not to go buy a different kind of honey or get this honey out of my house and bring another honey in. The, pro, the, the reality is you need to back away and realise I'm not living for the things I was born for. I need to lower the intensity in my life. I need to wa- stop watching what I'm watching. I need to stop pursuing what I'm pursuing. Because some of this is damaging the pleasure centre of my life. And one thing we did know when we taught the men in that very, first, that very first pilot program, I had 130 men sign up to do the pilot program. And we had, um, uh, 20, had uh, 13 groups of 10, 26 facilitators. And men were telling the truth about their lives. And a lot of this was what's coming out. You know, I feel bored, feel like... But over those next six weeks, as they deliberately turned away from pornography or they deliberately turned away from sexually explicit stuff or they, they turned away from what you could call nibbling sexually through their eyeballs, looking at this woman, that woman, the other woman, about six or seven weeks in, the men started saying in the group, I have fallen in love with my wife all over again. And all they were saying is, my brain's getting back to normal. I was standing in church one Sunday morning talking to a group of men and I noticed a woman making her way through the seats and she came up and reached through the men and took me by the hand. And all she said to me was, thank you, and walked away. At the back of that thank you was a wife whose husband was beginning to remember that he had honey in his own heart. He began to remember, I loved this woman once, what happened to this? 
um, I've just lost my way. And over those, even in six weeks, men were beginning to experience the consequence of healing to those dopamine receptors. A couple of shocking re- but very important quotes. For males, greater amounts of pornography use uh, was associated with increased acceptance of sex outside of marriage, increased acceptance of sex before marriage, and less child-centeredness during marriage, damage to the pleasure centre. Pornography leaves men desensitised to both outrage and to excitement. They can't feel injustice anymore. They can't feel excited because they've damaged the pleasure centre. Leading to an overall diminishment of feeling and eventually to sit dissatisfaction with the emotional tugs of everyday life. Great research that came out of it. Now, one more thing I want to share with you because what is so important is for those... Many of us are older guys in the room, so I'll, you know, I'm way beyond this. There's no good talking to me. Um, you know, I'm kind of, I'm on the way out. Your grandfathers and your fathers and there's another generation coming up and by and large, the average person in Australia has never heard any of this stuff and as a result, they have no idea what Western living is doing to set up the next generation to find marriage and stable family life impossible because of the damage to their pleasure centre. To understand this, you've got to understand that the critical years in development, the really critical years, are the ages 10 to 14. For this reason, Delta Fos B and the teenage brain. Now, Delta Fos B is a protein. It's a neurochemical modulator. It's not a neurochemical transmitter. Dopamine is a transmitter. It transmits the message through the brain. But Delta Fos B is a neurochemical modulator that follows dopamine. Where dopamine is going, Delta Fos B will follow. And it's a protein that does something to the brain. It follows dopamine and wherever it is being activated again and again, it builds up in proportion to the number of times people kind of visit that experience in their brain. What this protein does is that it strengthens and it enlarges connections to the pleasure centre. It turns little tracks in your brain into pathways. Then it turns a pathway into a highway and it builds an increasingly strong connection to the pleasure centre in the brain. Now, one of the problems with the teen brain is that it is more responsive to dopamine. And when a teen, particularly between the ages of 10 and 14, when a child at that age experiences something that gives them pleasure, it is two to four times more intense than it is with an adult because their reward centre just works much more powerfully. So what a kid is connecting... uh, what experiences a kid is connecting to the pleasure centre in his brain during these years are critical for the future of this kid. Um, no one's in control of this stuff. This is, this is why teachers and parents and youth leaders and churches and aware parents are fundamentally critical to the development of kids that are capable of living a healthy life for the next 80 years. Um, the teen brain 
produces higher levels of delta force B than an adult brain. So all of this, this is, a, this is part of why the addictive cycle actually develops and why the addictive cycle is strengthened and why the addictive cycle doesn't go away in a hurry. But it is more critical with teenagers than it is with adults. All of this will work with adults, but it works more powerfully with particularly that age of 10 to 14 and then on through the teenage years because their brains produce higher levels of delta force B. Now, in God's plan, when, a kid, uh, when, when an adult experiences pleasure, the, the signal goes from the ventral tegmental area over the um, kind of the resistance or the, or the what did I call it before? Forgot. The threshold. And it, if it's able to stimulate the locus accumbens, you experience pleasure, but the signal then goes on to the prefrontal cortex where it is judged as being appropriate or inappropriate because in an adult, you experience pleasure, but the prefrontal cortex is designed to then give you feedback on that pleasure so that instead of just consuming yourself in that pleasure, you know how to put on the brake and say, okay, well, yeah, that's fun, but we're not going to go there. We're not going there because it's not appropriate. It's the prefrontal cortex that puts on the brake when the pleasure centre would like you to, to do it again. The problem with kids is that that area of their brain doesn't fully develop until they're around about 25 or 26 years of age. And it's one of the reasons why we don't hold children criminally responsible for their behaviour uh, be below a certain age because that area of the brain which assesses the appropriateness of something they would like to do just isn't working well. Now, part of the way you train good kids is you help them. You watch what they're doing and you help them to know when enough is enough and you apply guidelines and rules and, and structures around them to help them stop something when they wouldn't ordinarily want to stop. And we've all seen the consequences of that. That's what leads to you know, arguments and tears and, oh, well, can't I? It's because I'm your dad. I brought you into the world. I'll take you out again if you're not careful. All of that kind of stuff is part of the role of parents. And in one, of the, one of the important things for kids to get figured out as, as early as they can is that's what parents are supposed to do. Stop fighting them over that. Don't fight your mum and dad over this. Don't try and escape from it because this is what will help you create a brain that you can actually live with responsibly for the next 80 years. The prefrontal cortex, the judgment impulse control in a 10 to 14-year-old is an inadequate control mechanism for pleasure. They need you. They need you to help them to know what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, when to stop doing something and do your homework, when to put something aside and tackle responsibilities, how to have good fun but how for it not to rule, rule your life. There is a mismatch between the accelerator and the brake uh, and the tragedy is that about the age of 14, the brain begins to sculpt, it begins to cut off connections that haven't been being used and it strengthens the ones that are being used and as a result, um, the associations that young people connect with their pleasure centre in these teen years is absolutely critical. Last year, last year no, I wasn't allowed to go anywhere last year. The, the year before that, I was involved in a full week of ministry in Toowoomba. I spoke six times to different um, high school groups throughout that city. And on every single one of them, kids came to me afterwards and said, 
um, well, in one school, they'd had to buy a bus for the girls that only girls rode on because the boys would get out their mobile phones and be showing the girls pornography on the school bus in a Christian school. And it was, it was becoming just not safe for the girls to even be on that bus. They had to buy a bus just for the girls because we are in an age where kids have devices that give them access 24 hours a day to the kind of, of visual input that when I was a kid you couldn't have found without a private detective. Um, you couldn't see this stuff. I mean, one of the things I'm grateful for, I never saw pornography till I was 18 years old. Well, by that time I was well down, my brain was already being sculpted and I'd been sculpted in a home where my dad loved my mum. So I grew up believing that a man could not only love his wife but it could be a fulfilment for him for a whole, all of his life. And I can't imagine leaving Helen. I can't, um, I can't imagine our marriage falling apart. And at least in part, it's because I grew up in a home where that was modelled to me. And I'm a recipient of a brain that was sculpted during a time when I wasn't bombarded with um, the kind of image that would have connected to my pleasure centre. Already it was hard enough just because just living in a normal world. But our kids aren't living in a normal world anymore. And we have to appreciate the power of what digital stuff, the, the relentless crusade for thrills and entertainment is doing in crafting stuff that is connecting to their pleasure centre and building tracks into pathways and into highways and then they have to live with that brain for the next 80 years. Let me just say this to you. The fact is teenagers get addicted to every substance faster than adults and once addicted have much greater difficulty ridding themselves of the habit and not just in their teen years but throughout the rest of their life. Uh, let me read this to you. This was uh, from Jay Geed, the Chief of Brain Imaging at the US Institute of Mental Health. He said this, It is a particularly cruel irony of nature, I think, that right at this time, adolescence, when the brain is most vulnerable, is also the time when teens are most likely to experiment with drugs or alcohol. Now, you've got to add to that another list of things. It's not just drugs or alcohol. Um, digital devices, without trying to turn the mobile phone into the, into the devil... The, is, the realization is the reason people spend so much time on them is because the potential, to, the capacity to stimulate a pleasure sense through the eyeballs is just one of the greatest avenues to the pleasure center in our brain. And just people just get locked onto this stuff 24 hours a day. Every moment they, they can watch movies, they can watch YouTube, they can watch anything they want. And in the school grounds in Toowoomba, one 12-year-old boy came up to me and said, is it too late for me? He, what he was saying is, this is already out of control in my life. I don't know how to control it. I'm just 12 years old. This has, gone, this has got out of control. I said, it's not too late, but you can't leave it any longer. You've got to fight for your future. He goes on to say this. It's not just drugs or alcohol. It's porn. It's digital devices. It's the gaming thing. Now, it's not, by all means, gaming's great fun. But when you go doing it eight or ten hours a day, my brother led Teen Challenge for 14 years and they were starting to have now people turn up for, uh, in, in, um, in Teen Challenge, not just for drugs and alcohol, but now it was gaming. Guys had been doing gaming for three or four days in a row, never got off the, off the lounge room floor, just relentlessly playing this mind-stirring, gripping stuff and he can't live for any... Now he's got to be in Teen Challenge trying to get over an addiction that just came out of the whole issue of gaming. It's because our brain is so vulnerable. 
He goes on, sometimes when I'm working with teens, I actually show them these brain development curves, how they peak at puberty and then prune down and try to reason with them that if they're doing drugs or alcohol or porn or whatever it is that evening, it may not just be affecting their brains for that night or even for that weekend, but for the next 80 years of their life. Now, I'm going to go past this because I'm, 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 I'm finished. I'll, I won't go through that. I have made a decision. The more I've understood this, the more I've stepped back into gardening. Um, gardening's not that exciting. But it's wonderful. Because I was created for a garden. I was created to grow things. God created a man in his own image and placed him in a garden. And there's something wonderful about planting flowers, about pruning fruit trees, about growing tomatoes and of delighting yourself in gentle pleasures, in stepping back from the relentless pursuit of the next big thrill. And I've done it simply for my own health and uh, noticing the wonderful thing is that the more you do that, the more you just kind of ease into just a different experience of life. God created us for communion and for relationship and for meals and for conversation. And uh, when our brains are just pounded relentlessly with pleasure, all of that stuff feels like it isn't worth very much. And yet it's the essence of life. A new vision for manhood. I love trying to help men rediscover the fact that God called them to be an ox. God's called us to be lions, to stand up and protect the ones we love. He's called us to be eagles, to be men of faith and worship and prayer. And he's called us to be decent men. Men, the kind of man a woman can trust. I love asking kids this question. How do you become that kind of a man? How do you become the kind of a man a woman can trust? And the answer is very simple. You become that kind of a man one day at a time. What you do every day is what is creating the man you are becoming. You want to be the kind of man that a woman can trust for the rest of her life? Then you need to guard your brain. You need to appreciate the pleasure centre is one of the greatest gifts God has given you. But it can be very easily damaged in a highly dislocated generation. Guard your brain. Guard the pleasure centre of your heart. Because there are people that are looking to you. This, is, this little crew are my grandchildren. I've got more now. I've got 12 of them. I want these little kids to grow up knowing that Poppy and Nanny loved each other all the days of their life. I never want these little kids to, to be wondering, um, are my mum and dad going to stay together? One of the greatest... Um, tools for my kids staying together is to, for their parents to just develop a healthy and great marriage and demonstrate the gentle pleasures of what we were called to. There's going to be some great thrills now, tomorrow, in the future. I'm going to win the next time I play golf. I'm, going to, I'm just going to do such some glorious drives. Then I'll go home, mow the lawn, do ordinary stuff. This is what the Valiant Man course is all about. It's not just a download of um, insight or education. It's a journey 
helping men to become reflective about who they are becoming because you are becoming what you will be one day at a time. What you do every day is what you will become. And when you begin to help men to become reflective on that, um, by the grace of God, you can help men become the kind of a man that a woman could trust. A 10-week journey could save your life. It could save your marriage. could save your soul. I'll tell you one more story. <clears throat> I received a, an email one, uh, about this time last year from a guy who did Valiant Man back in 2008. He was a facilitator in someone's church somewhere. But what people didn't know was that he was also a pedophile. In church every Sunday, but with a wickedness at work in his life. He said it was while I was facilitating Valiant Man and realising how great my need was that I watched God touching men who got serious. And it moved me so much. He said that in 2009 I went into a police station and turned myself in and told them every criminal act I had ever done. He said, I was prosecuted and sent to prison for nine years. I lost my wife, I lost my children, my friends and my business. But he said, in that act of desperation, in prison, I encountered Jesus. He has radically transformed my life. I am no longer a pedophile. He said, when I totally humbled myself and refused to lie about any more about what I was, what I'd become, Jesus Christ met with me and I am a totally different man. One day at a time, he became a different man in prison. He said, I just wanted you to know I've now been released from prison. I lost my wife, but she's still my best friend. My children have reconciled with me and God has given me a $30 million business uh, to lead as the CEO and they know all about my past and they understand where I've come from. And then he gave me an outline. He said, in prison, God gave me this prescription for helping pedophiles. Extraordinary. Now, why would I tell you that? Well, that's an extreme example of what happens when the pleasure centre rules our life. When you understand something of the process, um, it becomes a really vital thing to take a step back and say... I, I wonder if the life I'm living and the way I'm doing it um, is healthy. I wonder if there's a great future down this pathway. You were created for a garden. You were created for heaven. You were created for the goodness of God and for great relationships and every now and then to have thrilling moments. And if you guard the pleasure centre of your heart with purity, because the only way to restore it is down a pathway of purity, you can not only have a great life, but you can be the man that women and children can trust. And that's why I do this stuff. Now I'm going to ask, has anyone got a question you'd like to ask me? I'm going to take a couple of questions and answers and then I'm going to pray for you. And, um, then I'll let anybody else do whatever they want to do. Because I've kind of done what I came to do. Has anyone got a... Yeah, you've got a question. Go for it. They shrink. Well, once they're damaged, then your experience to experience pleasure at that time in your life has just been damaged. Over time, they can be, if, if you, it's this, and this is what 
uh, recovery is all about. Um, if the drug addict will stop putting heroin in, they will go through a pretty tough time because the, the pleasure centre is crying out for more and the whole body has become well, neurochemical tolerance, so they just need it even to just stop going into withdrawals. But if they, can, if they can stick through the withdrawals, the brain will begin to recover. Now, here's the challenge with addictions. Delta Fos B is the protein that, that strengthened the pathways and it's, it's got a long half-life. So it hangs around in an area of your brain for an extended period of time. If you were to go cold turkey, let's say you're, you're into porn or maybe you're into gaming or maybe you're into drugs or whatever, you decide, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm stopping it. And for three months you cut it out. But then you lapse one time. The moment you lapse, bam, that Delta Fos B is back there stirring the thing up again. And it's why addictions are so hard to break and it's why most of the time people won't do it alone. They need to do it um, in a community where they're coached and encouraged and they've got accountability and all that stuff because um, those addictive pathways don't disappear just because you stop for three months. They will hang around. And sometimes an, an addict 15 years down the track can walk down a street and smell a smell and bam, all those emotions and feelings just come flooding back in again because the tracks are there. They don't just disappear. They will shrink over time. Um, to give a time frame to it, if someone has been deeply into an addictive process, deeply into it, it will be three to five years for them to fully recover, for their brain to return to normal. But by the grace of God, brains do return to normal. And if you persist, then a person can recover and rediscover a healthier life. Anything else about that you want to ask? Okay. Anyone else got a question you'd like to ask? Every parent ought to know this stuff because it's really important. And there's some good books out there about this that uh, can help parents appreciate some of the great, some of the dangers that kids are facing today that weren't, weren't even around 10 years ago. Um, we're, we're watching a, the modification to an entire generation and uh, without appreciating some of the dangers, um, kids are just going to find themselves with their brains moulded by stuff that they didn't even realise was happening. Okay, and no more questions. All right, got a, now I've got one last thing. I want you to bow your heads. Bow your heads, close your eyes. I don't want you looking around. One of the greatest things that ever happens to you is you realise that you are not an animal and that God has good things for people. God created the pleasure centre, but it does need to be guarded. I just wonder if everybody here has appreciated the fact that God loves you and he sent Jesus Christ to carry the penalty of your failures and open for you an opportunity to be totally embraced by the love of God and in the love of God, to have your sins forgiven and for God's spirit to begin a renewal in you. It may be that you've never asked. I don't know what brought you here tonight. I don't know what situation you're in. But there comes a moment where you need to say to God, I need help. And you may have never said that. Now, I don't want anyone to open their eyes. If that's you, 
and you, in your heart you're saying tonight, God, I need help. I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need help. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand. All I'm going to do is pray for you right where you're sitting. I need help. It all begins with humility, just saying, I need help. I've made mistakes. Okay. Father, you see those hands. And I pray tonight for great grace. I pray even tonight for the beginning of a miracle that in their hearts they will say, Jesus, come in. Lord, don't leave me as I am. Come in, here I am. And I pray that even in the utterance of that prayer, they will know that something is happening. Some great kindness is being done to them from heavenly places, that you are for them and not against them. I pray in the name of Jesus that you'd bless them with life and lead them, Lord, to ask questions. The churches they're related to, Lord, uh, give me a mentor. I want to grow. Got one last question. Um, you may have never done the Valiant Man course. You may have never done anything like it. I reckon every man in this country needs an experience of having his understanding of his own sexuality uh, expanded, his own struggles with managing it well. Um, I'm just going to ask you, how many sitting here have never done it, but if you had the opportunity, you would? And I don't, I don't want you to do any more than just... Because I'll say to the leaders, okay, this many guys put up their hands, you need to run the course. If those of you who know you need to, you need to do something along this line, and you, if it was offered, you'd be willing to do it. Just raise your hand so I know where you are. Okay, there's a dozen guys saying that's them. So, gentlemen, those of you who lead the churches, I want to encourage you in this coming year, give these men an opportunity. Run a valiant man course, give them the chance... And I know it'll do you good. It'll change your life in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. It's been great to talk to you. I appreciate your kindness in being here. God bless. Thanks, Alan. Could we just oh, a bit loud? Could we just give Alan another hand of applause? And just thanks so much for coming, Alan. And uh, the material that Alan and Helen have written, and particularly the stuff for men, we've we, we've run a few of them in our church, and they've been really great. So just encourage you, if you want to know more, just catch Alan before you go. Um, and as I said at the start, if you'd like to bless Alan for his ministry and for tonight, just in the big white box down the back or on the F post. They're just welcome to give, and we'll bless Alan. So Alan's preaching for us tomorrow. We're looking forward to that. Uh, thanks for all the guys from Destiny. Thanks, Sean, for coming along. It's been great to see all you guys, and have a great night.